Good morning, everyone. There you go. And if you're joining us online, wherever you're joining us from, good morning to you as well. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open up to James chapter 3? We're going to look at verses 13 to 18. I'll give you a few moments here. James is between, as in the New Testament, it's between Hebrews and uh, 1 Peter. And so would you open up to James 3? Uh, we're going to read uh, verses 13 to 18. And while you're doing that, I just want to let you know we're going to be talking about wisdom today. Particularly, two types of wisdom, earthly and heavenly wisdom. But first, I want to talk about, I just want to put that aside for a second, and I want to talk about Ikea. And maybe more specifically, yeah, flat pack furniture. You know, after 38 years of living, I've come to a conclusion that anything that A, comes from a box, and B, requires assembly, is pure evil, especially flat pack furniture. For me, I, I picture the designers, like, like if I'm going to put something together, I have this moment before I do so where I'm, I'm thinking about the designers, and I'm like, I bet you they sit down at a table, and they're like, all right, we need to create something that will test the limits of any marriage. But not always, absolutely. But not only that, when we create it, it's got to be done so. The person putting it together has to do it with an Allen key. That's it. And maybe, let's go one step further. Let's make the instructions as ambiguous as possible. So what do we have? That's, that's what happens in my head. Now, whether that happens, I don't know. And I, honestly, I'm a sucker for it. I... Try as I might, my, try as I may, I, I cannot put flat pack furniture together. But I convince myself that I can, right? I look at all these great instructional YouTube videos and I see how people have real great success doing it. I'm like, oh, I can do that. And then I see all these pictures of people having fun putting flat pack furniture together. And no one, all right, Calvary, hear me, no one has fun putting flat pack furniture together. If you do, if this is your thing, there's a level of sin that we need to talk about because <laughs> no one enjoys putting flat pack furniture together. And honestly, that's just me. But when I see all these things, I convince myself that I too can have fun doing it. That is until I get to step two. And step two says, get out the Allen key. You see, wisdom and experience tells me that I should stop. That I should stop and go get Ruth because she's so much better at putting Ikea furniture together than I am. I mean, do not pass go, do not collect $200. That's what wisdom tells me I should be doing. But this is what the wisdom of the world does. It convinces me, despite what I should know, that I shouldn't be doing it. You see, the worldly wisdom puffs up my pride. But I do it, I still move ahead with it, because I'm driven when I see all these videos and all these images and all these examples of people putting together this furniture, I'm driven by the envy that I have of others and selfish ambition to be better, to be right, and to satisfy my own desires. But this is what James is wanting to get at today. He wants to show us two types of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from above and there's a wisdom that comes from below. There's one that comes from God, and there's the one that comes from the world. That's what James 3, 13 to 18 is all about, discerning between the two. And we discern between the two so it matures our faith. And if, if you're taking notes, all right, if you're taking notes, then here's my three points in a quick sentence. What you do reflects your wisdom. So avoid wisdom from below, and instead, embrace wisdom from above. 
Again, point one, what you do reflects your wisdom. Point two, avoid wisdom from below. And point three, embrace wisdom from above. So if you have Bibles with you, or your phone, or a tablet, or whatever, let's get into it. Let's read James 3, verses 13 to 18. James 3, verses 13 to 18. This is what James says about wisdom. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving. It's gentle. It's compliant. It's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that before I read it. I was reading it. That's from the CSB. So if you're reading from another translation, uh, hopefully you're able to follow along pretty closely. You know, wisdom isn't something that we talk about much today. But when you look back at at James' day, wisdom was a pretty big deal. It was both a big deal for the Jewish and the Greek culture of the time. The Greeks loved wisdom, and the Jews did as well. I mean, when you look at the Old Testament, and when you look at the Old Testament, of the 39 books, there was five dedicated to wisdom. Book of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and the Song of Songs. And so I think there's something to be said about that. But then you also have the wisest man in human history, Solomon, right? Solomon. Don't forget in 1 Kings 3, when when God appeared to Solomon in a dream, he he said basically this, if you could have anything you want, what would it be? And I'm not talking about this genie in the bottle thing where if you rub it the right way, I'll grant you a wish. No. See, God had a bigger purpose for asking that question. And, And this is what Solomon replied with. He said, a heart to judge your people and to, and to discern between good and evil. A heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. In turn, God said to him, I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for good looks. No, he asked for wisdom. At the end of the day, all right, if you, if you look at Solomon's life, he was extremely blessed, but he also understood that the things of this world were fleeting. They're here today and gone tomorrow. That's why he said in Proverbs 4, verse 7, wisdom is supreme. So get wisdom. And whatever else you get, get understanding. But let's ask the question, what is wisdom? Is it just the quality of our experience or our knowledge of something or our good judgment or the soundness of our judgment and our decisions? Because if I were to say that wisdom is applied knowledge, And I'm not wrong in saying that. That's what wisdom is. It's applied knowledge. But if that's how you define it, that's where you stop. It falls short, even in light of what Scripture says. Check out what Solomon says in Proverbs 9, verse 10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But honestly, 
that's a bit of a funny word to kind of wrap your head around when you talk about the Lord and, and the fear of God, right? But think of it like this. On the one hand, because the word fear has multiple meanings. You can use it in, in different ways. On the one hand, I'm right when I say that I fear bears, and I do. I don't like bears. And yet I'm also right that I say when I stand before Niagara Falls that I, I stand in fear of Niagara Falls. You see, one describes the terror of a frightening situation, and the other describes this awe, this reverence, or this respect before something that is much, much bigger than you. And I've had the chance to stand in front of, uh, of Niagara Falls. Uh, you know, early on when my wife and I were married, we went to Niagara Falls with her parents, and uh, there's this, if you've ever been there, you'll understand what I'm saying, but there's this elevator you can take down about 300 feet, and then you can walk, you know, a couple hundred meters to be about 100 feet from the falls itself, and it's it's quite something. Like, as you're standing there watching the water pummel the rocks below you, everything around you is, is shaking. It's, it's fantastic. And I stood there in awe of just the sheer power behind the falls. And no one who goes to the falls looks at it and says, how awesome am I? I mean, that's not what happens. But to have a fear of the Lord is to understand who God is. He's the creator. We are created. He is eternal. We are limited. He spoke everything into existence. And I, sometimes I can barely get through the end of a sentence without stumbling. He knows all our thoughts. He sees everything we do. And there will come a time when we will give an account to him on the day of judgment. And I'm not trying to fear monger here. I'm just trying to create a, a picture of who God is. God's not some cosmic killjoy. But to have the fear of the Lord is to have a healthy understanding that he is God and we are not. It's that simple that he is God and we are not. But on the flip side, we fear the Lord with awe and reverence and respect because he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't. For those who are in Christ, we will never taste or experience the judgment and the wrath that God has for sin. Why? Because Christ did. Christ experienced it and went through it in our place. All we will ever experience from God is the unending compassion and grace and mercy but we stand in fear-filled awe of God and reverence as our Redeemer, right? As our Redeemer. Listen to how George Offord describes it when he wrote uh, a book uh, for John Bunyan called The Treatise on the Fear of God. This is what he says. He says, The great line of distinction that Bunyan draws is between that terror and dread of God as the infinite Holy One before whom all sin must incur the intensity of punishment. Now listen. And the love of God as the father of mercies and fountain of blessedness in the gift of his son. You see, Christ's death on the cross, his substitutionary death, it paid for the sins of those who put their faith in him. And because of that, to have a fear of the Lord is not only fear God as the creator, but to fear him as, with awe and respect as the redeemer. Right? Having, having a fear of the Lord isn't this negative fear that drives us away from him. No, it should be a right fear that drops us to our knees in worship of him. <laughs> but look at what Proverbs 1 verse 7 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. You see, the contrast here is the one who is wise, he fears, he reveres and obeys God. His wisdom starts with God. But the fool couldn't care. He couldn't care. He's not open to instruction. He's perfect in his own eyes. But the one who is wise starts with God. 
the fool has no foundation to build his wisdom on. So what's wisdom? We've talked about fear of the Lord, we've talked about reverence and awe. In one sense, like I said, wisdom is applied knowledge, but true wisdom always and forever will start with God. True wisdom responds to the things of life considering who God is, what he's like, and what pleases him. It's like this, all right? Let me give you an illustration. For those who, who drive, in fact, no, for, everyone knows what a red light means. At least, so a red light means stop, in case sort of people who don't know what it means. So when a red light means, when you see a red light and, and, and it's red, it means stop. But wisdom tells you to put the brake on because going through it is not good. In the same way, if scripture teaches you that the church is the united body of Christ, then wisdom tells you to build each other up and not tear each other down. Knowledge tells you that people will lie, cheat, and steal. But wisdom reminds you that their behavior is a hard issue. Back in chapter 2, James taught us that favoritism uh, is, is forbidden in the church. Wisdom tells us that because we're all created with intrinsic value, we can't be showing favoritism. But let's come back to James 3 for a second. Look at what he says in verse 1. By his good conduct, he shows that the works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but we all like to have an opinion. And usually if we're not careful with how we use our tongue or our speech, our opinions can be dead wrong. And I may even go so far as to say steeped in sin. You see, it's really easy for us to express uh, ourselves or to pour wisdom into something that, uh, that especially benefits us. Like if it's going to benefit, benefit us, we will be more than happy to give an opinion about something. And you see this out in the world all the time. It, it happens all the time. People in businesses will do things for personal gain or for benefit to the bottom line. It's, it all, it's always, what can I do now to get through today? So long as I take care of myself, I don't care who I hurt, what I do, or what happens. It's true. But the challenge for us in verse 13 is this. Our desires, our opinions, our views, whether in life, church, or politics, or whatever, are all meant to be seen through the filter of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he will direct your paths. That's wisdom. That's godly wisdom. That's the wisdom that James talks about, and we'll see this a bit later in verse 17. What we do and say and think and, and how we react all has to be seasoned with salt and grace. Salt, sorry, <laughs> has to be seasoned with salt and grace in light of who God is. It's not to look anything like the world. Like all jokes aside, all right? All jokes aside, we as Newfoundlanders, we love to say, oh, bless his heart. Bless his heart. After everything. Oh, you brought dinner, bless your heart. Man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Oh, bless your heart, right? But that doesn't give you a pass. Saying bless your heart doesn't give you a pass. And if, if you express yourself through the loss of your temper or the demeaning of someone else, then you already know that this doesn't fall in line with the good conduct that James is talking about in verse 13. But the reality is, though, is that according to the Bible, Christians should be the most pleasant people on earth to disagree with. We should be the model people by which good conduct is measured. And why? Because of who we claim to worship. And who we claim to worship, Jesus, should reflect the maturity of our faith. And so as Christians, our faith must be demonstrated through a wisdom that is gentle. That's verse 13. Gentleness is, no, gentleness should be the mark of, of every believer. I mean, look at Matthew 5. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek in some other translations. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. 
But the point that James is making here in verse 13 is this. If you have wisdom and understanding, prove it. <laughs> prove it. Live out James 1 and be doers of the word in gentleness. You see, the bar for those who claim to be wise isn't in how much money you tithe or, or how long you've been a member of the church or, or the ministry you serve in or how many business meetings you've attended. No, the bar for those who are wise and have understanding is in their attitude and your behavior and isn't marked with gentleness. You see, James is saying, show me your faith by the way you live and your actions and deeds and conduct will be seasoned with gentleness and wisdom or will they be seasoned with bitter envy and selfish ambition. Is your wisdom self-seeking? That's a better way to look at it. As we'll see in the next few verses, wisdom from the world is self-seeking, or does it account for the needs of others? Because what you do and the attitude you do it with, even in the mundane, will reflect the wisdom behind it. This is my second point. Avoid wisdom from below. Honestly, the rest of James is, is relatively straightforward. For the next four verses, he, he starts to break down uh, both this uh, worldly and, and heavenly wisdom. I mean, you could almost ask the same three questions for each, right? What's the motivation? Where does it come from? And what does it look like? You could literally ask those three questions for worldly and heavenly wisdom. But for verse 14, he starts to describe the wisdom that is motivated by envy and selfishness. But let's not lose sight of this, all right? Verse 14 is the complete opposite of 13. It doesn't work. If a person has bitter envy and selfishness or selfish ambition in their heart, if these two things have made a home inside of us, there's no way that we can lead a life of good conduct, especially one marked by gentleness and humility. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't fit. But this is the kind of envy that comes from the same word that's used for jealousy, but in a negative sense, right? To have bitter envy is to have this self-centered jealousy when something you do or say is challenged, and then the focus is taken off of you. You're no longer the center of, of the universe. It creates this bitterness in your heart and an envy for something that's not your own. And it doesn't even have to be about tangible things either. It can be about, uh, it can be the envy of losing recognition or attention or, or focus. And let me give you an example. So years ago, when Cora was born, my, my middle daughter, I was gushing, right? I was absolutely gushing that I had another girl uh, to, to raise and that God had blessed us with another girl. Um, and I was at work at the time, it was a, you know, a couple weeks afterwards, and someone had come up to ask me, you know, what was it like? What was the birth like? And I tried to explain it from a male perspective, and I thought I did pretty good. But then this guy comes in the room, he busts in, and he's all like, hey, listen, I want to tell you about my camera. I'm like, oh, are you serious? Right? So I'm, I'm literally gushing about the birth of my daughter, and here comes this guy talking about his camera. I nearly lost it. The attention was taken off of me. I, I was envious of losing, you know, the focus. My joy was gone. My experiences, and now everyone was focusing on this guy. I was bitterly envious of what he now had. And honestly, this type of, of, of motivation influences a lot of, a lot of people in the world and, and the things that they do. This is one of the motivation that, motivations that operate out of worldly wisdom. But the second here in, in this verse is, is selfish ambition. It's selfish ambition. Think of it this way. Selfish ambition causes us to look at life with a temporary perspective. 
In other words, worldly wisdom doesn't account for eternity. It only looks at the here and now. But listen, listen to what David Platt says about it. David Platt says it's only concerned for what is best for self-advancement and self-pleasure now. But let's, let's look at this from Scripture. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Right? This is probably by far the best example of worldly wisdom made manifest. Right? Back in the Garden, God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or what? You will die. I mean, come on, that's a pretty good example of heavenly wisdom, right? One job, don't eat the fruit. Because God only had the best interests of Adam and Eve in mind. But then here comes Satan, and he's all like, hey, hey guys, did God really tell you that you wouldn't die? I mean, seriously? Come on, no. He didn't do that. In fact, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. You see, and there's heavenly and demonic wisdom at play. Adam and Eve, along with the serpent, only thought about the here and now. Worldly wisdom will only ever say what's in it for me. In Calvary, we do this more than we realize. When you apply for a job, what's in it for me? When your marriage is struggling and someone actually says you should work on it, what's in it for me? What about ministry? What about if you're serving in some sort of capacity and you feel like you're the only one who ever does anything and the team around you isn't really being a team, but you look over to this other ministry and like, hey, that's a better team over there. Maybe I'm going to go serve with them. What's in it for me? But here's the kicker. <laughs> Man, this rocked me. There's no place for this inside the church, let alone our homes, our work, or any other aspect of our, of our lives. And, and why? Because listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. When our wisdom is marked by selfishness and envy, I promise you, you will see chaos, you will see disorder and fighting, but you will also see bitterness and anger and resentment towards the very people who have been saved by grace just like you are. When our wisdom is marked by selfishness and envy, the church will look more and more like the world and less and less like the bride of Christ. You will see loss of love, a loss of intimacy, a loss of fellowship and trust, respect and humility for others. And when you live like this, when you live like this, you're basically saying that you don't trust God. God isn't Lord of your life. And in fact, you are God. You worship yourself. And at your core, you don't have a God-enthroned heart you have a self-enthroned heart. You sit on the very thro throne that is reserved for God and God alone, and this ultimately is a worship problem. And how tragic Calvary would that be if the world saw that in us? You see, this is the type of wisdom, as James calls it, that's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's verse 15. It's of the world, it's of the flesh, it's of the devil. It's a, it's a type of wisdom that says, look out for number one. It's a type of wisdom that says, you do what's best for you, and, and, and trust me, this mentality is alive and well. It's alive and well. None of us are safe from it. And if we allow ourselves to, to live like it and to be influenced by it, then I'm afraid we fail to understand the gospel. If I follow this path, right? If I just want to give a, a, a scenario. If I follow this path, the, the, what the world says, a look out for number one, then the next time I get paid, I'm going to go buy that Xbox Series X over food for my kids because I mean, I'm going to look out for number one. Or, or if you know a brother or sister in need in the church, you're purposely going to say, oh, I'm going to be busy on that day, even though you're not. You're looking out for yourself. But this is also a type of wisdom that targets your emotions. 
for a lot of us, how we feel is measured uh, by what is good. How we feel is our measurement for what is good, sorry. And maybe even more so in a social media age. And everyone suddenly puts their phones down. It's like, oh, Pastor Matt's talking about something. I should probably pay, pay attention. This is what Trevor Haynes says, all right? He's a researcher from Harvard, Harvard University. When you get a social media notification, your brain sends a chemical messenger called dopamine along a reward pathway, which makes you feel good, right? It makes you feel good. Now, I'm not here to bag out social media or anything like that, but these, these, the designers of social media platforms, they know how the brain works. They know what dopamine does to us. They know the chemical reactions that happen inside the brain. They know that when that little like icon appears next to a photo, it triggers something in your brain to make you feel good. Because the more you feel good, the more you'll spend time worshiping the feeling. And the more time you worship the feeling or the experience, the more you will do things based on how you feel. But it doesn't stop there. Like that's just one aspect. What about inside the church, right? Not every experience is a Holy Spirit experience. Just because you have this euphoric or transcendent experience doesn't make it from God. Adam preached on that last week about testing the spirits. Just because something feels good doesn't mean that it is good. I mean, I like cheesecake. Show of hands, who likes cheesecake? Yeah, that's right. I love, no, I like cheesecake. I love Jesus, but I like cheesecake. And I know if I eat a delicious piece of chocolate cheesecake, it's going to taste great. And logic would tell me that if one piece feels good, then three pieces will feel good. I mean, can anyone relate to that logic? Yeah, there you go. Awesome. But that's not what's going to happen, right? If you eat three pieces of cheesecake, you're going to feel bad. It's going to make me feel sick, right? We can't trust our feelings. In fact, this is what Jeremiah says. Uh, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's beyond cure. Who can understand it, right? Wisdom that's driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition is, in one sense, highly emotional, but it's also demonic. And I don't want us reading verse 15 and thinking, oh, it's demonic. If I use worldly wisdom, I'm possessed by the devil. No, that's not what James is talking about here. He's, when he says that it's demonic, it, it, he's, he's saying that it stands in direct contrast to what is heavenly or what's from above, right? And you see the world doing this when it challenges biblical norms, when it challenges the truths of Scripture, you see, God tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. But the world says that's too limiting and offensive. God says that we're all sinners, but the world says that we're just basically good people who make a lot of mistakes. Jesus says that he is God, but the world says he's just one of many gods. Scripture teaches that all life is sacred, and yet when you look throughout history, you see the world elevating certain people over others. This is the wisdom from below. A wisdom that is earthly. It looks out for number one. It's unspiritual and targets your emotions. And it's demonic. It doesn't come from God. This is the type of wisdom, Calvary, that has no place inside the church. None. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. It cannot stand in the church. It can't. And if it does, we need to repent of it, give it over to God, and get rid of it. But check out what James says in verse 16. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. You see, if verse 14 is the motivation, if 14 is the motivation and 15 is the origin, then 16 is the result. 
Wherever you see envy and selfish ambition, you will see disorder and evil. But don't get lost in these words. These are are just general words that James uses to talk about all types of uh, disorder and evil practices that come about because of bitter envy and selfish ambition. He doesn't have a specific circumstance. And I really think we need to stop and reflect on this as a church, right? Before a holy God, we are all sinners. We all deserve judgment, but we are all very capable of falling prey to envy and selfish ambition. If we aren't on guard, if we aren't careful, we will sow seeds of disorder. We will. Let me give you another example. So the reason why I love this, this part of James is because there's so many examples you can give to differentiate between worldly and, and heavenly wisdom and, and order and disorder and all that kind of good stuff. You know, we've been doing this whole KCC thing for two years now, and I can tell you that there have been moments where envy and selfish ambition have taken root, right? It's been hard establishing a church in Kilbride with my family and John Lewis and, and the Drovers. It, it has been absolutely frustrating at times, so much so that I want to pull up my hair. Because in my mind, having a church with 100 members, a building to function out of, and a level of autonomy is exactly what I think I need. <laughs> But I also know that that's emotionally driven. It's worldly. It's demonic. You see, I'm envious, or I was envious of what Calvary has. My ambition to grow KCC came out of a selfishness and, and and a desire to satisfy my goals, my wants. And because of that, the way I spoke and the way I acted around my team, it it had changed. Little did I realize my conduct, again, that's verse 13, wasn't sowing seeds of gentleness, but rather seeds of disorder, right? Just because we call ourselves Christians or believers or disciples of Christ or whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use, it doesn't mean that you're safe from worldly wisdom. In fact, I would say we're more in the crosshairs than anyone else. And given time, given enough time, this wisdom will break out inside the church. The more we look at our own desires and goals, the more the unity that Christ calls us to will be shaken. And here's my third point. Embrace wisdom from above. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without pretense. You know, if, if I can be honest with everyone, this verse rattles me. It rattles me the most. You can see, I can handle verse 13 to 16. I know I can be envious. I know I can be driven by bitter envy and selfish ambition. I know that very well. I know I can sow seeds of evil and disorder. I mean, big check, right? But now James drops the hammer. Now it gets real. Right? If you claim to have mature wisdom and understanding, then prove it. That's what he's getting at here in this, this passage. Prove it. Eight adjectives. Pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, and without pretense. This is the line in the sand that James is drawing. But he does something here that we, don't, that we don't easily see in our English translations, right? The last seven of these, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense, they come as a result of the first, 
purity. It's not like they're, they're all individual ones on their own. No, the, the, the seven last ones come as a result of the first one. It comes as a result of your purity. This idea of purity in verse 17 has more to do with innocence and moral blamelessness. And from that, everything else flows. It's the type of purity that Paul talks about when the church or the bride of Christ is presented to him. It's a type of purity that's, that, that's, sim, that's the symbolism behind a white wedding dress, right? And out, out of this purity comes those who are peace-loving. They seek out order. The gentle or meek have a humble heart. They submit to one another. The compliant or those open to reason. They have a teachable spirit. Those full of mercy are filled with compassion towards those who are suffering, and the things they do are evident by their good fruits. You know, when someone is unwavering, that's the next one. They have a certainty and aren't easily divided on spiritual matters. And lastly, pretense, or those who are sincere, they speak the truth, they're stable, and they're trustworthy. They don't say one thing and mean another. You know, another way to look at it is they're they're not full of hypocrisy. And you see, when someone is filled with these qualities, they're taking their knowledge of God and applying it accurately and appropriately. And the question I believe that James is really wanting us to wrestle with is, is this you? (laughs) Is this you? Check out what it says in verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. I like how the NIV puts it. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now there is some debate about how this verse fits into the overall passage. Some people say it could go with chapter four, but other people say it can go with chapter three, the end of chapter three. And honestly, it can fit with both. I'm not gonna choose a side. It can go with either or. But if we look at it in light of what James is talking about here with wisdom, then it makes absolute sense. You see, James cares about the state of the church. He loves the church. He cares about its maturity and he cares about what the church is being influenced by. He's concerned about peace and and, and the heavenly wisdom that can bring about to a hurting and fractured church. This is why he makes sure we understand that heavenly wisdom is evident by the peace-loving nature that people should have inside the church. Those who are peacemakers, whose conduct is marked by gentleness, those who sow seeds of peace, they will reap a harvest of righteousness. You see, this is an encouragement to them, and it should be for us. The fruit of righteousness here is not this righteousness that we have before a holy God. It has more to do with our behavior, the good conduct, as you read in verse 13, that flows out of a living faith in the giver of life. It's like James is saying, if I could just paraphrase this, he's like saying, hey, peacemakers, I know it's hard. I know sometimes people can really just make it really hard to do life with. But keep going. Keep going. Blessed are you because you are a son or a daughter of God. And the seeds of peace that you sow out of your good conduct and gentleness and heavenly wisdom will cause others to do the same. So keep going. Trust in Christ. So where do we go from here? You know, we've just spent the last, I don't know, 30 minutes, 30 some odd minutes looking about wisdom. But let's keep it simple. We'll wrap up now shortly. James has just given us a description of of two different types of wisdom, one that is self-centered and the other that is selfless. One can't see past today and the other looks into eternity. 
One sows seeds of disorder and chaos, and the other sows peace and unity. We need to be constantly, church, evaluating ourselves and asking if the wisdom that we portray looks like the world or is it salted by heaven itself. And you can't do that without being in this. You've got to be in this every single day. So let's not just read the Bible just to tick off you know, the, the, the mark. Yeah, I've done it. I've done my five-minute devotion. Soak in it. Spend time in it. Be conformed by it and be changed because of it. May our wisdom be pure and peace-loving and gentle and compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, and without pretense. Because as we'll see in, in James 4, the fighting and quarrels that Curtis will preach about next, yeah, he's, he's doing chapter 4, I'm not. Really looking forward to it. But when, he, when James talks about the quarrels and the fighting that happens inside the church, it's because of people who are given over to wisdom that flows from bitter envy and selfish ambition. So let us strive to be more like what James talks about here. Wisdom that is pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, full of good fruits, unwavering, and without pretense. Because what you do reflects your wisdom. So avoid wisdom from below and instead embrace wisdom from above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word, Lord. I pray that for those who are listening, have heard a better sermon that I could preach. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to have wisdom that is from above, not wisdom that's from below. I pray, Lord, that we would spend time in your word. I pray that you would teach us. You would lead us by your spirit. You would guide us. And you'd help us to grow in maturity in our faith, Lord, through how we speak, what we do, and how we do it. I thank you, Lord, praise you, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.